mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, did you know North America's only producer of grain-oriented electrical steel is right here in Ohio, and there are concerns that that production is being undercut for foreign imports. Senator Sherrod Brown discusses the importance of protecting this essential component of the American electrical grid. Also this morning, Coinbase and others made a big splash with their Super Bowl ads in an effort to take cryptocurrency mainstream. But many are still skeptical. Is it the future of finance? To your health this morning, the benefits of adding walnuts to your diet for American Health Month. And in our Throwback Thursday segment, The Red Line. Could a new Cold War between Russia and the U.S. erupt into World War III? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition. For Thursday, February 17th, 2022. If you need a reason to celebrate today, it is uh, my way day. I'm going to do things my way today because it's my way day. National Cabbage Day, National, National Cafe Ole Day, National Public Science Day, World Human Spirit Day. Doesn't that sound inspiring? World Human Spirit Day. It is Who Shall I Be Day today. Who shall I be today? I am going to be somebody who does random acts of kindness for others because today is Random Acts of Kindness Day. Do something nice for someone today. Just because. So among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your day started, more COVID mandates uh, being allowed to expire or being reversed. Uh, looks like the CD from the, I think I heard a report this morning that the uh, CDC may be looking at uh, new guidance that would make uh, masks optional in more places, uh, remove the guy, removing the guidance uh, for people to mask up and, and all of that. We've seen a precipitous drop in the uh, number of cases. And this is kind of as we were talking a little bit about this yesterday. The reason I bring this up, because uh, you remember at the height of the pandemic, there was talk that uh, things like remote work, even remote learning, there was a time we thought, well, maybe this will be sort of the norm moving forward. If not a permanent shift, maybe a, a hybrid type of work schedule. Sometimes people have been be in the office. Sometimes people will be working from home. Same thing with kids in the classroom and so on. And uh, now there is more evidence that, no, that is not something that is going to stick. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is urging major companies based in his city to end their pandemic restrictions and bring their employees back to the offices. He said, it's time to get back. I'm hoping within the next few weeks, the CEOs will map up, map out a real plan of this is when you need to come back to the office. The mayor of New York City, he wants companies to put bodies back in cubicles. And it's really not difficult to figure out why. If people are not working, then they're not dining out. They're not going out for lunch. They're not uh, taking cabs to meetings and things like that. They're not, uh, you know, there's a whole economy built around the idea of people going to and from work. And when people aren't going to and from work, then all of that gets upended. Um, 
Referring to companies that have delayed previous planned dates for employees' return from working at home, Mayor Adams said, we can't send mixed messages. We can't keep kicking the down, can down the road. Um, he is positioning it as part of the effort to uh, help the city's economy continue to recover as the Omicron wave is ebbing. But still, surveys find that uh, company... Uh, company executives are three times as likely as employees to want to return to uh, workplaces. The executives want the uh, employees back, but uh, employees still continue to resist. Maybe it's because of virus concerns. Maybe it's just because they don't want to go back to the office. They like working at home, at least part of the time. So continues to be a back and forth, a uh, a battle uh, between companies and their workers and those who depend on companies being at work. So interesting stuff there the mask mandate on airlines uh, on airplanes and in airports is set to expire next month no word on whether that's going to be extended or not but this is kind of interesting the whole idea of course to protect from uh the uh, virus in those extremely compact enclosed spaces like airplanes um but this is kind of interesting. A new report finds that uh, the dirtiest places on airplanes, the places where you are most likely to pick up a bug and get sick, pick up a virus, um, are maybe not necessarily where you would think. The seatback tray tables are the single most disgusting service on just uh, surface on just about any aircraft. And a flight attendant tells Business Insider for a story on this. You may think that people only place drinks on seatback trays, but that is not the case. The person before you could have slept on it or used it to even to change a baby's baby's diaper. <laughs> Never really thought about that. A flight attendant says she's seen people put their bare feet up on the top of tray tables. Uh, this echoes findings from a 2015 study that found that seatback tray tables contain an average of 2,100 colony-forming units per square inch. In other words, the nasty stuff that can make you sick. Researchers said, as a result, you should try to eliminate any direct contact uh, with the tray table, especially, you know, don't put food down on it directly on your tray table. That could make you sick. The issue is that the cleaning crew on an aircraft only has a limited amount of time to do their work, and they are more likely to focus on the more obviously dirty places, such as bathrooms, as opposed to seatback tables or windows, which is another place that's teeming with germs in this report. So don't underestimate how important, uh, you know, uh, sanit sanitation wipes and hand sanitizer are to uh, take on your next trip, even after the restrictions end, it's a good idea to uh, have those uh, wipes, <laughs> wipe these things down because they are yucky. It's kind of interesting with respect to that. Here is the speaking of the uh, pandemic. Here's the latest shortage things that you, you know, there are all kinds of things that you can't find on store shelves. Here's the latest Rice Krispies. They have been on store shelves since 1928. But according to reports, people have been having issues finding Rice Krispies on store shelves over the past couple of years. More, most recently, the, uh, the brand has been very busy on Twitter replying to customers who are frustrated with the shortage, noting that supply constraints in manufacturing are causing the delays 
and they are unsure when the cereal will be restocked. So if you see Rice Krispies, bottom line, you see Rice Krispies on the on the shelf, get them while you can because there's a, the latest shortage. And I would imagine by extension, Rice Krispies treats are hard to come by too. So whatever will we do? We got to get a handle on this. I mean, this is getting serious. We have no Rice Krispies, no Rice Krispie treats. Got to get serious about this. Um, here's something else that you may not find in uh, stores very soon. Plastic bags. Walmart uh, looks like they are working on a plan to get rid of plastic bags in all of their stores. In all of their stores. There are places where it's already prohibited, but they're looking at just eliminating it across the board. The chain is currently testing out using alternatives to single-use plastics in their curbside pickup and home delivery services, with a spokesperson for the company telling CNBC that they are scouring for areas where plastics can be eliminated while still being able to keep fruits and vegetables fresh, uh, products from getting damaged, things like that. These changes can take time, the company says. They are currently using tote bags at one New York store for their in-home delivery service, which can be washed and reused, unlike the disposable bags that were previously used. Of course, this doesn't mean that the trend will extend to all of Walmart stores or that they will eliminate plastic bags entirely, but it seems to be uh, that that is uh, where things are trending. So that is there. Oh, and by the way, speaking of stores and products on store shelves, how about this? If you need a boost to get up and get going in the morning, Hostess has introduced caffeinated jumbo donuts. Caffeinated donuts. (laughs) They're called Hostess Boost Jumbo Donuts. You know those bags of little tiny donuts you get from? Now they are (laughs) Hostess Boost Caffeinated Donuts. They are debuting in two flavors, chocolate mocha and caramel macchiato. They are three times the size of the original Hostess Donuts mini donuts. And each are infused with coffee bean extract extract and lightly glazed. Let me say that again. Each are caffeinated with coffee bean extract and are lightly glazed. Each donut contains 50 to 70 milligrams of caffeine, which is slightly less than a cup of coffee for each donut. So you eat like two or three of these donuts and it's like slamming down three or four cups of coffee or like an energy drink, something like that. Both flavors rolling out to convenience stores this month. So... That's, is this really a, a product that we were clamoring for, for uh, caffeinated donuts? <laughs> so now we'll get, uh, get you on a, on a sugar high in the morning and filled with caffeine. You will be ready to go, but watch out for that noontime lunchtime crash. And uh, finally, this morning, among the uh, first things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. You've been following the uh, doping scandal at the Olympics over Russian figure skater Camilla Valieva. She was the heavy favorite to win gold, and she has been allowed to compete despite testing positive for a banned substance back in December. And the reason why she's being allowed to compete is in part because at age 15, she is a quote-unquote protected person, according to the 
uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport. And that decision, that ruling and the logic behind it, has amplified calls for the minimum age for participation in the Olympics to be raised. Report from the Associated Press cites uh, some figure skating officials as uh, pushing to raise the minimum age for Olympic skating events from 15 to 17 in time for the next games in 2026. Supporters say it would protect child athletes and reduce the risk of potentially serious injuries from pushing their bodies too much too quickly. And it's kind of interesting. Statistics may back this up. Nearly all of the quadruple jumps landed by women in international competition have been done by skaters under the age of 18. Because it's a lot more difficult for older teens and adult women to perform these tricks. Uh, One of the Russian coaches has transformed figure skating with a string of teenagers doing quad jumps. It's uh, Iteri Tubidizeri's, I think is how you pronounce it, kind of stock in trade. But her skaters, this trainer's skaters, often have brief careers, end up having to retire at age 18 or 19, sometimes after suffering severe injuries. Mariah Bell, the U.S. skater who at age 25 is the oldest national champion in nearly a century, spoke out about the issue of longevity, saying you want these athletes to have an opportunity to have this be a profession, not just a one-year run. She said that uh, longevity would allow skaters to become more known to audiences, which is kind of the way it was until recently. Think of Dorothy Hamill. I mean... You know, all these years later, you say Dorothy Hamill, I think a lot of people know who that is. Uh, whereas, can you name the uh, gold medal winning figure skaters from a couple of games ago? Case in point. I think it just proves the point. So it'll be interesting to see if they, uh, uh, if there is any movement in that in terms of uh, raising the minimum age for Olympic skating athletes. Which I think is a good idea. I think maybe even across the board. I mean, it's 15 years old. That's just a, a very young... Uh, age it would also probably help with the whole mental health aspect that has been such in the news uh, as well you get a little bit uh, more mature more years under your belt and maybe you're a little bit better able to uh, handle uh, all of the pressures of the sport at that level too so something to think about so there you go some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your thursday morning started wfin news i'm matt demchek your WTOL 11 weather. Showers early today will transition to a wintry mix in the afternoon. And then over to snow tonight, temperatures will plummet throughout the day. The National Weather Service says to be ready for a roller coaster of weather today. The day will start off relatively warm with heavy rainfall possible. Then in the afternoon, it'll transition over to a wintry mix. And then tonight, become all snow. One to two inches of rainfall is possible. And then potentially one to three inches of snow and sleet later in the day. Remember, you can get the latest forecast and river levels on the website. The city of Finley says residents should be ready to deal with some road closures from flooding, but Mayor Christina Mern is not anticipating a significant impact to property. Fortunately, with all the flood mitigation efforts that have been done so far and property clearing, we're not expecting any significant impact to property. But obviously, depending on how quickly the rain comes down, we may see flash flooding in some areas. Remember, you can check out the latest river levels and forecast on the website. A Finley house sustained extensive damage when it caught on fire on Wednesday. The fire department was called to 235 Garfield Avenue on the report of flames coming from the second floor of the house. 
Fire crews began putting water on the flames and eventually got the fire under control. We were told that two dogs who were in the house when it caught on fire were let out and are okay. No word yet on the cause of the fire. See some video from the scene on the website. The courtship between two of America's largest theme park operators is officially over with no deal. In a brief statement, SeaWorld Entertainment confirmed that Sandusky-based Cedar Fair has rejected its takeover offer with a reported $3.4 billion. News of SeaWorld's apparent interest in buying Cedar Fair, which owns Cedar Point, Kings Island, and other parks around the country, first became public two weeks ago when Bloomberg detailed negotiations between the two sides. ONN's Tracy Townsend reporting. President Biden will be visiting communities near Cleveland and Lorraine today. He's expected to talk about how the infrastructure law is helping Ohio rebuild roads and bridges, upgrade water systems, clean the environment, and create jobs. Communities in the area are letting residents know to expect traffic delays due to the president's visit. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. story this morning. I did not know this. It is uh, kind of interesting. The only producer of grain-oriented electrical steel in North America is, uh, let's see here, Cleveland Clips is right here in Ohio. The only uh, producer in North America, and it is an essential component of the American electrical grid. Speaking with uh, Senator Sherrod Brown to uh, talk about the importance of protecting this essential component of the electrical grid, uh, grain-oriented electrical steel, Um, Senator Brown, along with uh, Senator Portman and uh, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, recently sent a letter to the uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and uh, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai to express concerns about the threat to domestic production of grain-oriented electrical steel being undercut by foreign imports. Um, We have uh, the senator uh, on the line. Senator Brown, are you there? I'm here. Okay, there we go. Okay, a little uh, technical glitch there. We get to uh, worked out. No, not a problem. Not a problem. Uh, So you wrote uh, this letter expressing concern over uh, this uh, threat, especially concerning because it is, as we said, an essential component uh, uh, to the American electrical grid. What action would you like to see taken to protect that domestic production? Uh, Are you talking tariffs? Are you talking about a requirement for the use of domestic uh, product in infrastructure improvement uh, projects, what? Yeah, Senator Portman and I teamed up, as we often do on these kinds of things, in a, in a bipartisan letter to the Commerce Secretary and to the U.S. Trade Rep, uh, simply to say you've got to enforce U.S. trade law. Russia and China continue to break the rules by shipping these components um, through a third party. We know when they come from Russia and China that they're cheating. We stop it, but then they ship it through Canada or ship it through Mexico. It's a little whack-a-mole game. They just kind of try a different way, and we've got we've to be more aggressive um, to keep these kinds of um, products that, that, that 
that are breaking international trade law. And ultimately, my concern is it costs us jobs. And we know that Cleveland Cliffs, the largest producer of flat roll steel in North America, in North America is the only producer of this grain-oriented electrical steel. It's really important in grid transformers. And it's really important because Senator Portman and I teamed up also on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that, um, that, that we start, that we no more bridges made by steel, made from steel in China. It's going to be American steel. So strong by America provisions and strong enforcement from, from all of us uh, and, and WTO reform all at the same time. Not only from the standpoint of protecting jobs and protecting uh, an Ohio company, obviously, but also in terms of security, given the importance of this particular product. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we we have found out one of the one of the one of the problems with our uh, 20-year trade policy and a well, 40-year trade policy and 40-year tax policy that has been mostly pushed through Congress by large corporate interests. We out our com- company outsourced so many jobs, so much of our supply chain, and now we're paying for it because after the during this pandemic, our supply chain so far flung around the world is has cost us jobs and cost us work. And I mean, I grew up in Mansfield, and I know Mansfield and Finley and cities in our part of the state have have lost so many jobs because corporations lobbied for NAFTA and PNTR with China. I always opposed those trade agreements because I knew they'd hurt American manufacturing. And ultimately, they undermine, as you say, Chris, they undermine our national security because we don't, we need to make this stuff that contributes to our national security. We need to make it in America. Uh, speaking of uh, bipartisan legislation, also uh, in the past week, uh, you have uh, been part of the introduction of a bipartisan reauthorization act for the Violence Against Women Act, which would build on some of the protections uh, for women in that legislation. Talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, the most important thing is that, that women, it's usually women that are that. that Violent acts are committed against not always, but usually women in, in, in domestic situations. And we've got to, first of all, keep them safe. And part of that is a provision I wrote on protect, on, on making sure they have safe places to live. So often in a domestic situation, uh, the, the abused spouse or the abused partner, again, usually female, has no place to go that she can really be safe. And so um, we're working with local agencies and communities. Um, I, I, I know this isn't their major um, their major focus, but I, um, the, I, I was in Finley some time ago at the Family Center and what they do um, to help families in many, many, many ways. And domestic violence protections are, um, are a part of, of what we should do in communities. Uh, real quickly, uh, in about 30 seconds or less, the crisis on the uh, border uh, in Eastern Europe between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, do you believe that sanctions will be enough if uh, Russia does choose to invade? And can we prevent that from happening with the threat of sanctions? Well, that's the million dollar question. Our sanctions are, are certain. They're strong. They're stronger than sanctions have ever been. Uh, as chair of the Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs Committee, one of my responsibilities is to help write sanctions legislation. We will inflict maximum pain on Russia. Russian banks on Russian energy sectors, on Russia, on Putin himself, and on Putin, Putin's billionaire 
um, thugs around him. And we have sent the message loud and clear to Putin that if you attack, even if you just do what you might call a minor incursion into the Donbass region or towards Kiev or even as far west as Lviv, if you do that, you will pay. And it's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of support and a lot of stability in your economy um, because we mean business. We're not going to send troops. We're not going to attack back. We're not going to be part of this land war. But we're going to use every economic tool we have. And our government, Biden, Republican leaders, Democratic leaders, stand strong on that. As the rest of the world continues to watch, Senator Sherrod Brown, thanks very much for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris, for sure. More information, particularly on uh, that uh, issue with respect to protecting domestic uh, production of that green-oriented electrical steel because it is so critical uh, to the American electrical grid. And uh, obviously, uh, so many uh, different issues are raised uh, with that in terms of foreign imports, national security, and so on. Much more on this at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Certainly an issue uh, story worth following Uh, even though it's sort of flying under the radar with respect to the uh, national press. But uh, interesting nonetheless. It seems like every time you turn around these days, you're hearing about cryptocurrency. Exchanges like Coinbase were noteworthy additions to the lineup of advertisers in the Super Bowl this past weekend in an effort to bring crypto to a more mainstream audience. And there is no question that market values have exploded in the past couple of years, but many still are not convinced. Philip Martin is a chief security officer at Coinbase. In fact, we heard uh, that report in the news the other day that for a time the Coinbase site crashed after your Super Bowl ad air. So clearly people are responding mission accomplished in that respect. Absolutely. You know, when when all of America wants to get uh, get in your front door, can get a little crowded occasionally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, how is crypto becoming the future of finance? Make your argument here. Great. So the first thing I want to do is make sure folks understand what crypto is at its core. When we talk about when we talk about the the advent of the internet, right? What we did is we moved uh, the movement of data of information to the digital realm. Cryptocurrency is doing the same thing, but for the movement of value, and actually even more than that in some contexts, right? So that's a very seemingly simple idea, just like sort of the internet was, with I think far-reaching ramifications. The mm-hmm. other thing. I think people should understand because I, I hear a lot. Um, I hear a lot two two things. Number one, I hear uh, from people. I don't see the usefulness of this. Isn't this just a toy? And then, sort of the counterpart to that is, I hear people saying, "Aren't we too late? Isn't this already happened?" And so, I want to draw that same analogy again. When we were ten years into the internet, more or less, what we had was dial-up modems and like web pages that looked like posters, mm-hmm. right? And we heard those same two concepts. We heard, this is a toy, it doesn't do anything. And we heard, um, you know, oh, we're, we're already too late. We've already hit sort of the, the, the peak, the right. max that they right. can be. And they were very, very wrong, right? So my, my thesis is we're in the same stage in crypto. And I'm super excited to see what the next decades are going to bring. But there are still those who are not convinced. Many, if not most, financial advisors would tell their clients not to invest in crypto. What is the key to winning over those skeptics? Yeah, I think uh, it's obviously going to vary, but I think there's a couple of key things. Um, and I would note, by the way, that they're already being won over, right? That, the, that more and more financial advisors are looking at this, more and more traditional financial institutions are getting into this space. But I think uh, 
there are a couple of core concerns, right? One core concern is uh, is regulation, right? And is the uncertainty around the regulation of cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's as we can see slowly being fixed in a, in a measured, sane, safe way. Which is and kind we'll of interesting over time. Which is kind of interesting just to interject because that was one of the things that initially attracted early investors was the fact that this was kind of deregulated and not uh, centrally controlled by you know a, a central bank or, or something. So it was actually one of the attractive uh, aspects to early investors. But again, you're talking about in mainstreaming this, uh, you've got to get a uh, win over the skeptics. You know, I think that the, the early days, um, you know, from my perspective, there was a lot, and I think it still exists today, there was a lot of pushback against, um, not against the core principles of regulation in the financial uh, uh, world today, mm-hmm. but against the, you know, 100, 150 years of evolution that it's undergone that has not necessarily always kept pace with modern technology. And so I see, I think what we're seeing in with the advent of, of crypto regulation is regulators coming to terms with this new fundamentally different technology and figuring out how to regulate it in a sane, reasonable way. The other issue that a lot of uh, skeptics will point to is the safety and security is using crypto as safe as using traditional currencies, say the gold standard, the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and my answer would be absolutely. And I think the important thing to think about is that it's not always safe to use a dollar, right? It depends on your context and your location and and how you're choosing to use that dollar. And so the difference is actually more in the user than it is in the medium. We all know when we park our car, not to leave our wallet on the front seat and and walk away from it because chances are it's going to be gone when we come back, right? Um, There was no class in high school about how to be a safe internet user. My parents, I don't know about yours, did not sit me down and have a talk about what to do when you're in an uncomfortable internet situation or how to use good passwords, right? right? And so we have a lot of education to do for folks to be intelligent, informed, safe consumers, not just in cryptocurrency, but on the internet. It is a valid point. This uh, would apply not just to cryptocurrency, but just the internet in general. And I think that one, again, one of the uh, things that makes people nervous is because it isn't, uh, it doesn't exist in the tangible world. It's not something like the dollar that we can, that we can hold, that we can have, that we can protect in the digit, in the uh, traditional sense. So when it's not tangible like that, what are some of the best practices that can keep those digital assets secure? That's a great question. I'm going to give you three, but the first thing I'm actually going to mention real quick is that people can actually have a tangible uh, manifestation of their cryptocurrency, right? They can use a hardware wallet, for example, which is a device that lets you act as more or less your own bank, right? Store your own cryptocurrency. Um, This is one of the strengths of cryptocurrency is the variety of of choices you get to make. But Mm -hmm. to your core question, which is, I think, a very important question, three answers. Number one, Use a use strong, unique passwords everywhere you, you use them. And because I'm sure I cannot remember 100 different strong, unique passwords, use a password manager to make that easy. Okay. Number two, use two-factor authentication everywhere you can. Uh, use the strongest form you can on any website. If for Coinbase, that would be something like a YubiKey, right? which is a secure hardware security sort of token that plugs into your computer, but maybe it's an app on your phone. Maybe it's a text message you get with a code in it. 
Number three, and I think this is the most important one, if you if you forget the first two, remember the third one, I think you're, you're going to be well on your way to being safe. Bring your skeptical mind to interactions online. In much the same way that if a stranger stopped you in the street and told you all about the latest stock tip that they were given out, right? Um, your reaction would probably be, who are you? Uh, get away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, why would you then take that same interaction in an email or on Twitter and treat it with more trust, right? Bring that same, your same skeptical self to the internet. And, and you'll be well on your way to making good choices. Again, uh, good advice, not just for cryptocurrency accounts, but mm-hmm. everything in the online universe as well. Now, uh, you know, we're throwing a lot of uh, stuff at folks uh, that they may not fully understand. And obviously, we could go into a lot more detail, but for our time constraints here, but you have a lot more information uh, on all of this stuff on your website, right? We do indeed. So the two, two places I'll, I would point folks, number one, coinbase.com slash learn. So this is where we have a bunch of educational content on cryptocurrency, everything from sort of crypto 101, all the way up to a very, very advanced topics. The other place I'd point people is to our YouTube channel, where we have a series called Security 101, where I have members of my own team talking about their experiences and staying safe in cryptocurrency and online. Again, Philip Martin is Chief Security Officer at Coinbase, one of the noteworthy additions in the cryptocurrency space. Advertisers this past weekend's Super Bowl taking this mainstream more and more every day. Philip, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. To your health this morning, as we mentioned the other day, February is American Heart Month uh, to draw awareness to cardiovascular disease, which is, in fact, the number one cause of death, not only in the United States, but globally, and uh, ways to lessen our risk, including eating heart-healthy foods. Put that right in the spotlight this morning. To that end, registered dietitian and nutrition expert Samantha Cassidy is with us this morning. Uh, Let me start with a basic question, and this may uh, almost sound uh, goofy because... you think it should go without saying why is heart health important i mean our hearts are important our hearts are important i'm glad you agree and so yes it is american heart month um but as you called out earlier you know heart disease is the leading cause of death it's leading cause of death here in the u.s as well as around the world and so there's never a bad time to start thinking about ways to lower your risk and take care of your heart And so what's great is that you can do something simple like include a heart-healthy food such as California walnuts in your diet most days, and that's going to really help you out, get those heart health benefits, um, which we'll go over in a few. Okay, so uh, how do we begin to eat more heart-healthy? Yeah, so I think one of the best things you can do is check out the American Heart Association's Heart Checkmark Certified Foods. So, of course, walnuts makes the cut, but um, there are other foods like blueberries and oats and salmon. And so what you basically want to do is make some of these your foundational foods in the sense that you want to be adding them to your diet most days. Um, you know, start eating them with meals, start making snacks out of these foods. And so, you know, one of the things that I love about walnuts is it's really easy to make a habit out of eating them because you can do so much with them. So people often think about snacking or putting them into, uh, 
um, you know, oatmeal, but you can put them in your roasted vegetables to add that heart healthy crunch. And that's a great way to start including them in your diet. Well, that's one of the questions I was going to ask. Uh, talk about uh, ways to incorporate uh, the example you used, walnuts, uh, into everyday meals and snacks. As you mentioned, it's just about uh, amping those things up a little bit. You can make seasoned walnuts, like a sweet and spicy blend, and then add them to sweet potatoes or butternut squash or sautéed greens. Um, you can Walnuts are really versatile, so you can make tacos out of them. Um, you can make egg cups out of them. In the sense of egg cups, you know, a veggie and walnut uh, egg cup is packed with protein, has those heart health benefits from the walnuts, and also, um, you know, it's easy to make ahead and grab and go. So take a couple for breakfast or lunch at lunch or another meal. You might, might want to uh, put that with some salad or roasted vegetables. But the main thing here is to buy that bag of walnuts because you're going to want to do so much with them once you bring them home. Again, we talk about this in the context of uh, heart health. What are the benefits? How does this improve our heart health? Yeah, and this is what I get really excited to talk about because um, the benefits of walnuts are science-backed. So one recent study from Harvard found that people who ate five or more servings per week and think that a serving is about a handful, um, so about five handfuls or more per week, they had a 25% lower risk of dying from heart disease, and they added 1.3 years to their life. So... That's an amazing benefit that you can get by just adding that handful of walnuts to your diet most days. Um, but another great benefit of walnuts is that they happen to be the only nut with the plant-based omega-3 ALA, um, or rather with an excellent source of the plant-based omega-3 ALA. And so that means they have 2.5 grams per ounce. That's an excellent source. And this plant-based omega-3 ALA has also been found to support heart health and may prevent heart disease, including heart attack and stroke. So this one food packs so many healthy benefits. It is not an insignificant uh, difference that uh, this one food can make. And again, as you mentioned, it's just one of many. Exactly, exactly. But such an easy like sort of starting point in terms of getting heart healthy would be to include that one handful a day because again it's a it's an easy amount to go for it's approachable you can do so much with them so you can do more than throwing them in your oatmeal although that's a great way to go if that's yep. what you like but um, yeah there's so many benefits you know walnuts are also uh, a source of protein and fiber. So four grams of protein, two grams of fiber. They're also a good source of magnesium with 44 milligrams. So um, it's just incredible when one food has so much going for it and it tastes good and you can use it in so many ways. Yeah. So a great way to get started down that road to heart healthy eating, talking about the benefits of walnuts. Uh, again, registered dietitian and nutrition expert Samantha Cassidy with us this morning for American Heart Month. Where do we get more information? Yeah, I encourage you to visit walnuts.org. So go to walnuts.org. You're going to get all the recipe ideas that I talked about today. You're going to get so many more recipes, and you're going to get the latest on heart health research. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. 
I mean, we've had some uh, strange thefts in the broken news over the years, but can you imagine having your entire house stolen? That's right. Michigan State Police are seeking help from the public in locating an entire cabin that was stolen. Now, to be fair, this is a fairly small cabin. Uh, 12 foot by 28 foot, originally located in Cold Springs Township, and the owners of the cabin recently reported it missing, presumed stolen. <laughs> how do you steal a, a cabin? More, more importantly than how do you steal a cabin is the question of, did someone not notice? I mean, how do you transport a stolen cabin? You would think that someone would notice <laughs> that this was being swiped. It is believed the cabin was taken sometime between November 18th and December 16th. <laughs> Why it's just being reported now, I don't know. But if you... Uh, they're just asking people to be on the lookout for a <laughs> missing cabin in Michigan. <clears throat> well, all right. Um... Again, unusual situation here. Firefighters in Newton, Kansas, had their work cut out for them this past Saturday night following an accident that resulted in a tractor-trailer fire, a semi-truck fire. Uh, crews are busy. Uh, it says busy overnight. This is the uh, Facebook post from the uh, Newton, Kansas Fire EMS. Said uh, crews were busy overnight. In addition to four critical EMS calls, they assisted the Walton Fire District with a vehicle accident. That resulted in a tractor-trailer fire. The trailer carrying a load of cheese. <laughs> a load of cheese. An extensive overhaul was required. Uh, the Kansas Department of Transportation responded with a high loader to spread the cheese in the ditch. <laughs> a giant cheese whiz project there. Uh, in this incident, several patients were checked at the scene but declined transport to the hospital, so just minor injuries. Um, a, lot of, a lot of really uh, humorous con uh, comments, responses on the uh, Facebook post. Um, uh, one person said, if there was only a truck full of chips, <laughs> of nacho chips, there could have been a big party. <laughs> gives a whole new meaning to the term toasted cheese, doesn't it? There. Okay. Uh, let's see here in Pennsylvania, kind of a, a crazy moment for uh, Spring Township Police Department. Uh, apparently, uh, this is a word of advice for you next time you're on, on the highway. Pay attention to your surroundings because you never know when a tire is going to come hurling at your windshield. Uh, officers were monitoring traffic. Uh, just in a routine patrol. When they were caught by surprise when a pickup truck traveling westbound on the highway lost a tire that struck the patrol unit that the officers were sitting in. <laughs> Just came out of nowhere. Tire came and uh, smashed their windshield. Luckily, the tire struck the cruiser and then launched into the air off to the opposite side of the road instead of traveling into oncoming traffic. But uh, authorities shared that uh, while the vehicle suffered some extensive damage, the patrol car, the officers and the driver of the truck were unharmed. <laughs> so happy ending there. But, uh, whoo, man, what a what a story. I don't know if there's, uh, like, body cam video or dash cam video of this, but crazy. Uh, let's see here. What else is uh, going on? 
Oh, um, we talk about uh, somebody stealing a cabin. I hope this doesn't become a trend in real estate. A couple living in the foothills of New Zealand's Southern Alps are looking to sell their house. And uh, to garner attention for their listing, they stripped down naked and posed for photos on their property for the listing. <laughs> Lawrence Simpson and his wife, Clarissa, say they uh, didn't necessarily do it as a marketing strategy. They just thought it would be funny. But the approach seems to be working as their property listing on TradeMe.com racked up more than 20,000 views. <laughs> uh, in the photos, it should be noted, in the photos, they used strategically placed items to hide their private parts. But they are certainly naked. <laughs> they listing photos. I'm not sure if that would make me more or less interested in the house. You know what I mean? That's... Yeah. And a couple of uh, animal stories in the uh, broken news. Residents of Santa Clara County, California, say wild pigs have been a problem in their neighborhood. And they blame the draining of the Anderson Reservoir for a dam repair project that has allowed large numbers of the animals to invade neighborhoods. They are destroying yards and landscaping and all of this. Four residents in the Jackson Oaks and Holiday Lake Estates neighborhoods have tried to bill the Santa Clara Valley Water District about $20,000 for the damage that the wild pigs have caused. The request, however, was denied. Water officials say the reservoir is not to blame for the influx of wild pigs, but residents claim the reservoir formed a seven-mile-long barrier that kept the pigs at bay until it was drained in late 2000 for the dam repair project. <laughs> now they have all of these pigs wandering their neighborhood. <laughs> Meanwhile, animal control officials in Virginia say that they don't know where an emu wandering the area has come from. They have no idea where this uh, animal has uh, come from. They just have a wild emu wandering the area. The Franklin County Animal Shelter says the flightless bird has been spotted by several witnesses over the past two weeks. And shelter officials say no owners have come forward to report a missing emu. <laughs> Animal control officers will continue their search of areas where sightings have report been reported this week. <laughs> and it's wild emu on the loose in Virginia. I don't know, it's just weird. Of all things, a wild emu on the loose. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less. Of Hancock County Veteran Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. WFIN, your year-round home for exciting sports play-by-play -play coverage. Finlay Trojan and Ohio State football and basketball. The Cleveland Guardians, Blue Jackets hockey, and the NFL regular season, postseason, and Super Bowl. And I got two words for you. Series sweep. The unthinkable has happened, and history has been made at Nationwide Arena. The best in live sports coverage happens here. 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Uh, again, bear with me. This is another uh, another survey in the, in the aftermath of uh, Valentine's Day. Which I thought was uh, kind of interesting. A new survey of 2,000 parents of children between the ages of 5 and 18. So parents of kids that still live at home. Examined how they have kept the spark alive 
which I think is very appropriate in the aftermath of Valentine's Day. Everybody's you know thinking hearts and flowers and romance and all of that. But how quickly does it fade? 72% of those in the survey say they still get butterflies when they see their special someone. And three in four, this I thought was really interesting, three in four said that meeting their significant other was love at first sight. I know a lot of folks don't believe in love at first sight. But then again, maybe you don't believe believe until it happens to you. Three in four parents of kids between the ages of five and 18 said meeting their spouse, significant other, was love at first sight. Uh, Which is maybe why it's no surprise that eight in 10 couples in this survey say they are open to recreating their first date in order to relive that special moment. 79% said that would be a perfect date night. Now, this was a a survey conducted by one poll on behalf of care.com, which is the babysitting online babysitting website. So obviously it's talking about going out uh, for a uh, date between mom and dad. 78% of parents believe that having regular date nights is vital in keeping uh, the love strong over the years. On average, parents have had seven date nights since the pandemic began, with some more creative than others. Sometimes just watch a movie, uh, taking turns preparing a romantic dinner, or having picnics outside in the backyard is one of the more creative ways to have a date night when you can't necessarily go out because of uh, lockdown and all of that. Before the pandemic, most parents say they were usually homebodies and preferred to stay in instead of having a date night. 72% said that. So the pandemic has actually uh, increased in the number of date nights where you actually go out. While most parents typically only have date nights for special occasions, the perfect date night can vary depending on the couple. Some uh, would prefer a night out dancing, 44%. 28% say they want to go sightseeing somewhere. Interesting. Others would prefer to just stay at home and uh, and talk or relax. About 46% said that. And one other surprise in this survey, men more likely to get wrapped up in the romance than women are. 85% of men versus 80% of women. So, so much for the stereotype that men aren't romantic. Uh, because they outpace women in this survey anyway. And, uh, of course, again, we're talking to parents of kids between the ages of 5 and 18, while parents in the survey say they love their children endlessly. 78% say sometimes they need a break in order to de-stress after being home and helping them with their homework, maybe remote learning, whatever, especially during the pandemic. On average, parents feel they need a break from their kids (laughs) up to four times a week. (laughs) And as a parent myself, my kids are older now, but I can remember you don't need a pandemic to say four times a week that you need a break from your kids. (laughs) That's that's pretty universal pandemic or no. Meanwhile, 72% of respondents feel guilty for going on a date without their children, which is why most parents, 79%, try to keep their outings short so that they can come home to uh, tuck their kids in in time for uh, for Betty by time. This kind of interesting uh, results from uh, this survey uh, on keeping the romance alive long past Valentine's Day. And now our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. 
we were talking earlier about the uh, crisis on the border between Russia and Ukraine, and you talk about stories being ripped from the headlines. This is a book that I think that applies to even more so today than it did when it first came out. Uh, you might say is ripped from the headlines of the future before they even happen. As it seems, every day we get a new chapter in the saga of devolving relations between the U.S. and Russia. That is the premise of The Red Line. It is a military thriller where this new Cold War erupts into World War III. Back in June of 2017, so nearly five years ago, again, this seems even more topical now than it did then, but back in June of 2017, we spoke with Army veteran-turned-writer Walt Gregg about what was his debut novel. It is today's Throwback Thursday. What's most interesting uh, about this, uh, even though it appears to be a very topical subject on the state of affairs now between Washington and Moscow. The genesis of this story actually dates back many years. That's correct. Actually, uh, I first came up with the idea for this book uh, many, many years ago when I served at United States European Command Headquarters in Germany during the first Cold War. And even though the, the political scenario looks like you're right, it was written last week, it was actually written over 20 years ago. Does that kind of give you chills? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, I really thought when I wrote it, well, this could certainly happen because given our, given Russia's history and and how they view the world, I thought, oh, we've, we're probably going to end up in a second Cold War and we seem to be sliding that direction. Mm-hmm. And, and to tell you the truth, I have had readers, so many readers go, oh my God, that this thing is is really great, but it scared me to death because it seems so realistic. Yeah. And so it's, it's been interesting. It's been quite a ride so far. So what was it that you saw all those many years ago that uh, signaled that we could be, in fact, where we are today? Well, it, it, if you look at Russian historically, during the Cold War, they had the buffer of the Soviet Union countries and the Warsaw Pact countries, the other countries of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though they were very much afraid of the West during that entire time, I, I think that was enough for them. But uh, you know, once once the Soviet Union collapsed, that that buffer's gone. NATO's right on their doorstep. Uh, I think Putin's got to be uh, working toward trying to reconstitute what he sees as Russia's rightful place in the world. I think the Crimea thing a couple of years ago is just the beginning. You mentioned a certain level of pride. Uh, obviously lost the first Cold War. That still stings. Absolutely. You're, you are absolutely right, Chris. That is a big factor here. I think you just hit it on the head right it's, there. Especially for Vladimir Putin, who was uh, very high up in the uh, Soviet power structure uh, at the time. So uh, you got to think that there are some lingering hard feelings there. Talk a little bit about the plot of the book and, and what uh, what is happening here in the storyline of the book. Okay, it's in an in, uh, undetermined year. I give you a, a, a month and a date, but I don't give you the year. Okay. Uh, it's a few years in the future, probably 10, uh, if I was going to guess. And what has happened is we've had another large world um, recession bordering on depression, and there's revolts. Uh, in Russia as their economy collapses. Putin is overthrown, and a neo-communist dictator, a Stalinist-type dictator, takes over. Uh, and he is very, very fanatical about uh, the scars from the, the First World War, uh, Second World War, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so he begins 
very subtly causing uh, revolts in the old Soviet Union countries and in Eastern European countries and returns them all to communism and returns them to being under the Russian sphere. He's got one goal left, and that's to split East and West Germany because the Germans still terrify him greatly. And so he, he then tries the same little trick in, in Germany, in East Germany, and it backfires. And what he does is triggers the rise of a powerful neo-Nazi uh, leader. And that guy is going to take over Germany and be the next, uh, you know, premier uh, president of Germany. And so the Russian can't, that there's no way he's going to ever sleep again if that happens. So he, plan, he has his generals plan a sneak attack uh, on the German border uh, in the middle of the biggest blizzard in 30 years. And the Americans, undermanned as they are, are waiting. And so that's kind of the, the beginning of the book. It's often been said that were World War III to break out, uh, that that might be, we talk about the war to end all wars, uh, that might be just it, simply because uh, the, likely, the likelihood of, of nuclear weapons uh, being used. Is that, um, is that where ultimately this goes? Um, well, I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, let me say that. You know, we live in a time... Uh, it's kind of been subdued in the last 25 years, but you know, I, I'm I'm up in age a bit, and I certainly remember the first Cold War even as a child. Mm-hmm. And there were moments when we thought our lives were over in nuclear war, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis for sure. sure. Yeah. And so I really focus on the important thing in a war, and that's the people. But where do we go if World War Three happens? I don't know. I mean, I am very concerned. Not just the present president, but the ones who follow him have got to be. Very wise, uh, because we, I mean, unfortunately, uh, we could, you know, mankind could end in a matter of minutes if we don't. So the book's kind of a warning, but it's a very entertaining warning. Well, I I tell you what, timing is everything, and uh, I guess it was just meant to be, because again, it it so closely parallels uh, many of the things that we are seeing in the news today, uh, almost frighteningly so. The Red Line is the title of the book. It's a story for this time, this yeah. is the right moment for it. And no question. I think there's a message here that is going to resonate quite strongly. From June of 2017, our Throwback Thursday segment this morning with Army veteran-turned-writer Walt Gregg, his debut novel, The Red Line. You can learn more about it at our webpage. And that will wrap up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program. Again, go to our webpage for more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show. That is goodmornings.net, where you find us online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, how the pandemic has changed the nature of workplace communication. What were once unthinkables have now become best practices. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.